Well, it is our practice the first Sunday of every month to observe the Lord's Supper. Some would say that's too often. I doubt it. Some would say it's not often enough. A good case could be made for that. The direction of Scripture simply tells us as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup that we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. So keep in mind later in the service as we observe the supper that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ is being preached in visible sign to remind even the most mature saints as to the importance of the supper, certainly to instruct new believers into the importance of the supper. And that's what I hope to do this morning. And after a bit of introduction, I'm going to ask you to join me in John chapter 6. So if you want to go ahead and find your place, John 6, particularly the last half of the chapter. Some have called the Lord's Supper a visible sermon. And as such, it's a time to partake of the benefits of Christ's death by faith. To be fed and cherished by the Lord in his own banquet house, so to speak. It's also a time to obtain a foretaste of the glory which will be fully realized only in heaven. Some of you might recognize the name Thomas Watson, an old writer. He says this about the supper. God, to help our faith, does not only give us an audible, written word, but a visible sign. The visible sign being the partaking of the bread and the cup. As Baptists, we would say we have two ordinances. The Lord's Supper and believers' baptism. Both depict great spiritual realities. The supper through the bread and the cup reveal to us the broken body and the shed blood of Christ at Calvary, which alone makes atonement for sin. Baptism, on the other hand, is a vivid display of our union with Christ. Our death to sin, our death to self, and the corresponding resurrection to walk in the newness of life. Graphically portrayed in the ordinance of baptism. We should glory in both. We should thank the Lord for each of these symbols, these ordinances that he has given to us. To encourage us to strengthen our faith. And that's the way I trust we can proceed with our observance of the supper this morning. I want to read you a couple of statements. Two paragraphs. Out of the Confession of Faith. The London Confession of Faith. That deal with both baptism and the Lord's Supper. And I refer to these only because they're helpful in understanding what the scriptures teach concerning both and really draws to the forefront a couple of things that I think are helpful 
and even necessary, needful for us. The first is in the 28th chapter of the Confession, the first paragraph. It says, Baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordinances of positive and sovereign institution. What does that mean, that this is a positive institution? We don't use the word positive in the, in the way that those who wrote this confession use it anymore. It means to be the opposite of something natural. And what the confession is teaching us there is that the Lord's Supper is something that was instituted by Christ. It had a beginning and it was not something that flowed out of a natural law. But this was something that he positively instituted in that of his own sovereignty. So what we have before us this morning is an institution of our king, the Lord Jesus Christ. That paragraph goes on to say both the supper and baptism baptism are appointed by the Lord Jesus, the only lawgiver, to be continued in his church to the end of the age. And again, to think on that term, positive. This is a new covenant ordinance. David was not obliged to be baptized. That was not a priority placed upon him. Abraham was not required to take the Lord's Supper. We don't see that in the Old Testament. If they had been part of the law of nature, they would have always existed. But since they are positive institutions of the Lord, they are a New Testament reality or a new covenant reality. And so we could make this observation. And it's one Sam Waldron makes. He says, to despise the ordinances argues a lack of respect of Christ's kingly office. To despise the ordinances, something that he positively instituted and gave as gifts to his church. If we think lowly of them, then we're thinking lowly of our king. The second paragraph out of the confession that is helpful says these holy appointments, referring to baptism and the Lord's Supper, are to be administered by those who are qualified and called to administer them according to the commission of Christ. What does the confession mean by saying that? Basically, it's a recognition. These ordinances are gifts of Christ to his church. They are ordinances, thus there are to be there is to be some kind of order about them. And this is something that I think is especially needful in our own day. We are called to think biblically about everything. We aren't left to suppose things. We aren't left to make our own way, make up things as we go. What this means and what the scripture bears out, these ordinances are given to the church. And let me go a little further in telling you what I mean by that. These ordinances are best and rightly observed in the assembly of the redeemed of God. 
These ordinances are not private. They are not individualistic. They are given to the church gathered to observe them together. That is the very essence of the word communion, isn't it? Community. And so, though I know it's in vogue and a common practice that believers today take communion alone or together as couples or perhaps even as families, I'm not sure that that's the best or most faithful way to go about observing this ordinances. And I say that not to condemn the practice so much as to exalt the ordinances to their rightful place. To see them as the positive and sovereign institutions that they are. It goes against the very heart and grain of communion for real believers to observe or witness other believers observing communion. There's no communion in that, right? We're not to be spectators, we're to join in. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We are joining in together, proclaiming the Lord's death through this ordinance that he has given us. And thinking along those same lines, the confession in the 30th chapter says the supper of the Lord was instituted by him the same night he was betrayed. And we know that to be a biblical faithful record. It was based upon the imminent betrayal of Judas that the Lord instituted this ordinance. Think about that with me. While he was being betrayed, he instituted the ordinance which first glorifies himself but also unifies believers and reminds them that he is ever with them. While the hand of Judas was taking the bread and dipping it, the Lord was instituting this so that we could meet together with all confidence, with all assurance of faith and trust to know that he will never forsake, betray, leave us. I want you to turn, if you haven't already, to John chapter 6. And so far in summary, I would just say that these ordinances are something that you can only experience rightly and biblically within the context of a local assembly. Some might take issue with that, but I think in saying that statement, we stand on the firm ground of the scriptures. I realize we are infiltrated with the individualism of our society. I realize that if we're not careful, much of the practice of society seeps into the church. And that might be as well taken by some as a saying like this that I read this week where I can't remember who said this or who published this this week. It's been said many times in many different ways, but something like this church attendance should be your excuse for missing even good things rather than the good things being 
your excuse to miss church. Now, immediately I know the response of some. Legalism. That's the way most people, well, I shouldn't say most, some would respond. But let's think about this. Christ died, rose again, ascended to heaven, and is even now preparing a bride for himself. The church, universal, is comprised of individual local assemblies of churches, local bodies. From time to time, I'll have someone come to me and they'll say, my zeal is running very low. I need revival. I need to feel afresh and anew the things of the Lord. My fire is gone. The first question that I always ask someone like that is tell me about your relationship to the local church. And often there will be a diversion. Can't you recommend a book for me? Can you give me a reading plan that will take me through pertinent parts of scripture that will restore my zeal and my fire? And I'll go right back. Tell me about your relationship to your local church. We, see, we can see this in real everyday life. That's the way Jesus taught. We're studying that in our Bible study hour on Sunday mornings through the parables. Jesus took real life examples and gave them great and spiritual profound truths. We can see it. What happens? Those of you who like to camp, you have a campfire. What happens when the coals begin to go down? They begin to spread out. They get cold. Before long, they snuff themselves out. We have a phrase and a term for that called stoking the fire. And what is that? It's just putting them all back together. Putting them all back together and what happens? The heat returns. The flame returns. The vitality returns. So those who are struggling in the faith and choose to stay away from the church are hurting themselves as much as those who are gravely ill choose to stay away from the physician. Back to our subject this morning. These ordinances belong to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. John chapter 6 really gets to the heart of this and reminds us of some great truths J.C. Ryle called John chapter 6, or he said this about the 6th chapter. Truths of the weightiest importance follow each other in rapid succession in the chapter that we are reading, John 6. There are probably very few parts of the Bible which contain so many deep things as the 6th chapter of John. Romans 8 might rival it. But there are many things in John. There's 71 verses here. And one of them, or one of the central themes of the sixth chapter, is Jesus making the declaration about himself that he is the bread of life. Then he goes on to say that he is not only the bread of life, but he is the living bread of life. 
Now, obviously, we know that this was before the institution of the supper that would come later. But many of the things he says here are applicable to what we will observe here in just a few moments. And along those same lines, isn't it interesting that Mark read for us Matthew chapter 2 this morning that reminds us that Christ was born in Bethlehem, the house of bread. He himself being the bread of life. So the context of what we're going to look at in John chapter 6 is immediately following the feeding of the 5,000, which had as the center of that the breaking of the loaves of the boy that had a few loaves and a few fish. Jesus broke those loaves, multiplied it so much that it fed 5,000 men, not numbering most likely the women and children in the group, And yet there was much to gather so that nothing was lost. So this is immediately after that miracle of Christ, but it's also in response to the Jews who are grumbling and complaining against Jesus. If you're looking at verse 41, you'll see that. The Jews then complained about him because he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. What was their complaint? Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How then can he say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up at the last day. I want you to notice that phrase. Repeated three times in the next dozen verses or so. I will raise him up the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they all shall be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. I am The bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are now dead. But this is the bread which comes from heaven. Comes down from heaven. That one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I... The bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? You know, this is reminiscent of what Nicodemus would say when Jesus told him, You must be born again. His natural response to that was, How? How can a man enter his mother's womb and be born a second time? This is the natural, unredeemed response to Jesus' words saying, You must eat my flesh and drink my blood. How can he give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. My flesh is food indeed, or true food, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. So let's look at a few things out of the initial part of this conversation before we move on. First of all, the simple observation. Jesus alone is life-giving bread. He says that over and over. I am the bread which came down from heaven. He uses this word over in verse 53. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And so a second simple observation can be made. Unless one eats and drinks Christ, he has no life. Now the obvious question that we have to ask is what does he mean? To eat and drink his flesh and his blood. Different ways people have dealt with that. The Roman Catholics believe that based upon the blessing of the priest... The elements of bread and wine become the actual physical body and blood of Jesus. No. We don't believe that. The scripture doesn't teach that. That is transubstantiation is the theological term which teaches that mysteriously based upon the blessing of a man... The elements become actual physical flesh and blood of Jesus. And so that's how they fulfill the eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood. We see this, we understand this as Jesus teaching that it is by faith. That his body is eaten and his blood received. We can make that assumption based upon what Peter says following this discussion. But I want you to, to key in on with me, with me on this word unless in verse 53. Most assuredly I say to you unless. We've seen this from Jesus before. In his conversation again with Nicodemus in the third verse of the third chapter, he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless. Some of your translations use the word except. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Again, same conversation, verse 27. Excuse me, this is John the Baptist. A man can receive nothing unless or except it has been given him from heaven. And then twice... In Jesus speaking about himself being the bread from heaven, he says, he uses this word, unless. Each use speaks to something that the natural man cannot do. 
that the natural man cannot produce. Each of these is the expectation of Christ that can only be fulfilled by the grace of Christ. Each of these are conditions that must be met, but that cannot be met in man's natural strength. Thus we are cast again onto the teaching of John chapter 3 about the necessity of the Spirit of God coming and giving aid and life and renewing the heart of a believer. So how do we eat the flesh of Christ and drink His blood? Children, how would you do that? By faith. You say, well, how do I do that? By faith. It's recognizing, with the help of the Spirit, that when Jesus died upon the cross of Calvary, and we read all of those horrific details of his crucifixion, about how he was beaten, how he was mocked, spat upon, a crown of thorns placed upon his head, The scourging that preceded all of that. By faith we see that as Christ giving himself for me. His enduring that for me. And that is making an atonement for my sin. We sang that that hymn this morning that spoke of the great exchange. The righteous robes of Jesus given to me in place of my filthy rags. His robes for mine. What a wonderful exchange indeed. So we eat and drink Christ by having faith and believing in him. Jesus says that in these these words. Verse 53. Most assuredly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drink my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up the last day. That's the second time the phrase is used. You must believe. But yet you can't. Or you won't. Until the Spirit of God moves upon you. And then you will willingly receive by faith the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the blessing or the benefit in verse 56 of receiving by faith the atoning work of Jesus. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. The word abide there means to remain. Those who come in faith and are united to Christ by faith remain in him. But perhaps the most blessed part of this verse is that he remains in us. As the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. So we're here this morning to be reminded of what it means to feed on the Lord Jesus Christ.
to see a, a visible sermon taking this little cracker in this little cup, placing them in our mouths, internalizing them. That's what faith is. Seeing in the scriptures what Christ has done. By faith we believe, thus internalize them, and then we have the blessed promise that we are abiding in him and he in us. What was the reaction to the crowd as they heard this radical teaching of Jesus? We had two reactions. There was the reaction of the natural man that left. And the reaction of the redeemed man who said, we have nowhere else to go. But let's see them both in verse 60. Many of his disciples, when they heard this, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? A difficult saying. Notice that it was of the disciples, not the inner band of the disciples that Christ had called himself, the twelve. But those who had been the beneficiaries of the bread and the loaves multiplied. Those who had for a time walked with Jesus and were willing to hear what he would say because they hoped for another display of a miracle. They hoped for another bellyful of something to eat. And you can see Jesus addressed them as such. If you were to back up in the sixth chapter, he tells them very plainly, the only reason you're following me is because you're hungry. You want something else to eat. You saw a great miracle, and you're seeking another sign. So it's of this group of people who complain about the hardness of the saying. And if you skip down to verse 66, it's of the same group of people who went back and walked with him no more. But that's after Jesus asks them the question, does this offend you? The eating of the flesh and drinking of the blood, does it offend you? Let me ask the same question in another way. Is the narrow way of salvation offensive? That Christ is the only way, is that offensive? That you must humble yourself before Him, repent of your sin, believe in Christ, is that offensive? To die to self, to take up your cross and follow him, is that offensive? Does this offend you? What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? The whole conversation thus far has centered around Jesus saying, I am the bread that descended out of heaven. If the fact that I came out of heaven offends you, what is going to happen when you see me return there? After I've been raised from the dead. And then he makes this great statement in verse 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. There are some who by faith will not eat the body and drink the blood of Jesus. Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe 
and who would betray him. So he said again to them, I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my father. And it was at this time many of the disciples turned back. But Jesus, in verse 67, fixes his gaze on the twelve. And he asks them, do you also want to go away? And Simon Peter says to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The same thing that caused some to turn and leave is what drew others in. The same statement by Jesus saying, I am the living bread, eat my flesh, drink my blood, was so offensive to some that they left. But yet you have those like Peter and ten more just like him in this immediate group. And they recognize, where will we go? If we turn our backs on you, In search for eternal life, where will we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. I wonder if you can find yourself in in these paragraphs somewhere. Everyone in the room is represented and can find themselves somewhere in this paragraph. There's really two, two groups of people. Those who hear the word of Christ and the expectation and turn away from it. Will not believe. Will not come in faith. And in essence, they're saying, we will go it alone, find another way. We're good. And there's another group of people presented the same question who answered far differently and just say, We have nowhere else to go. Nor do we want to go anywhere else. If you will have eternal life, if you will be saved from your sin, then you must come to Christ. There's no other way. You must, by faith, realize that the body that was broken and the blood that was shed was your atonement, for your atonement. You must put your faith and trust In the Lord Jesus Christ alone. That's what Peter does. Did Peter still fail? Yes. Did he find forgiveness in the Lord? Yes, again. 
So it's based upon this confession of Peter that we come to the Lord's table this morning. And every believer in the room, can I put words in your mouth? I know that's oftentimes dangerous, but can I speak for you this morning? This is what you're saying, and I'm saying it with you. When we approach the table of the Lord Jesus Christ, we are saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then putting all of this together, we know that you have instituted this supper for various reasons, but primarily so that the gospel can be preached in visible form. But yet we would be wrong in thinking that the supper doesn't have real spiritual meaning and edification for us. In just a few moments, you're going to have in your hands two things. You have a little cracker in this in this hand, and a little cup in this hand, or vice versa. And as you hold those things, the Spirit of God can use those two things and impress upon your heart. This is the body of Jesus, not literally, figuratively. It's broken. It was beaten, battered, bruised, crushed. This represents his blood. I am taking these in faith, internalizing these things again, realizing that it is only in Christ that I find salvation and eternal life. Is there any danger in what we're about to do? There is. The danger comes for an unbeliever who is willingly in unbelief taking the supper unto himself or herself. Those are the ones Paul spoke of in 1 Corinthians 11. For this reason, many among you sleep. And he wasn't talking about a Sunday afternoon nap. He was talking about their real physical death. So before I ask for the men to come and pass these elements out, I want to remind us of a few things. The Lord's Supper is for believers. Again, this ordinance is given to the church. There is to be, just like the scriptures say, all things are to be done decently and in order. What Paul wrote to the Corinthians who were so out of order, who were abusing the gifts of the Spirit in every way. It's for those who are trusting in Christ alone, who have no hope, of salvation being found in any other place, who realize the truth of what we're saying this morning. First off, it's not what my hands have done. It's 
what you've done for me. It's not what we've toiled and longed for. None of that can make us whole. But the work of Christ alone. The Lord's Supper is for those who are believing. Unto the saving of their soul. The Lord's Supper is for those who are presently repenting of sin. All believers will fall into sin. But because we have the Spirit of God residing in us, based upon Jesus' words here, He abides in me and I in Him, we will have conviction of sin, and we won't despise it. We will repent of it, be forgiven again. The Lord's Supper is also for those who have been baptized based upon their profession of faith. The Lord's Supper, you can think of it this way, is the perpetual ordinance where believers' baptism is the initial and one-time ordinance understood rightly. The Lord's Supper is for those who love the Lord Jesus Christ and His church and are desiring to find their place in it where they can serve their brothers and sisters in the Lord, to do all of those one another type things. It's another reason why we as believers so desperately need the church. You're going to find someone in the church who will really and sincerely love you, pour themselves out for you, Tell you hard things when you need to have them told you. You won't find that in the world. You might find that which pampers you and flatters you and does all of those kinds of things. But how many of us would thank the Lord for that brother or sister who came to us just like Nathan the prophet to David. And said, you are out of line here. Is that hard to hear? Yes. Is it a real gift of mercy and grace of God? Yes, again. The Lord's Supper is for those who are in communion with one another, those in fellowship with one another, joyfully serving one another. That's the essence of what communion is. We can't step outside of those boundaries and expect to have any real spiritual edification in this ordinance at all. I can tell you this based upon my own personal experience. If you take this supper and you give no real thought to the symbolism of it, if you are harboring sin in your own heart, If you are despising the conviction of the Spirit against sin in your life, being unwilling to repent and turn from it to mortify the deeds of the body. If you have no love in your heart for the church of Christ or the Lord's people, then you're going to profit very little, if any, from the observance of this supper. It would just be another thing that you've done today and in addition to the many other times that you've taken the supper before. 
But if by the grace and help of the Spirit all of these other things are as they should be and all of these other things can be as they should be in a moment. A moment of repentance before the Lord perhaps. Then this time of communion should be sweet, edifying, meaningful, helpful, beneficial, however you want to say it. So let me pray, and then I'm going to ask our men to come. Father, we thank you for the broken body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, we're thankful that you have given us spiritual ears to hear and eyes to see, that we are not offended by what Jesus has said. That we understand he wasn't calling for anything else than simple, pure, childlike faith and trust in him. That he is all that he says he is. That his sacrificial death atoned for our sins. That he really gave his life as evidenced by his being buried in the tomb. And that he really took it up again. And he ascended into heaven where he even now sits at your right hand. Father, you've been so merciful to us even as we began our service Reminding ourselves of all the benefits of being your disciple, part of the one sheep in your great fold. Lord, you've cared for us again. You've fed us again. You've led us again. You are protecting us even now. We can say with David, surely goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our lives. So, Father, this ordinance that your son instituted on the night that he was betrayed, would you bless it and sanctify it to us even now? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.